Donald Trump can't pronounce the word yesterday, yet focuses on nothing but yesterday. And Josh Hawley says he's not running, but was certainly running on January 6th. And forget the 187 minutes of when Trump did nothing. We're outraged over all the minutes he did do something. All on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike. For president, add Ike to you, add me to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 390 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. The select January 6th House Committee investigating the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, the effort to overturn the 2020 election results, and Donald Trump's role in all of it has taken a hiatus for now. And it's probably a good time to take a break right now and catch our breath over what we've learned. Unlike those who avoided watching the hearings because, well, they were fake and biased, America got to see the ugly truth of a plot to overthrow a legitimately elected government. That Trump encouraged the mob to invade the Capitol. That he knew from the start he lost the election, but made it clear he would do whatever it took to hold power. That he was part of the scheme of using fake electors with fake credentials that he called someone scheduled to testify before the committee as clear a case of witness tampering as there ever was one, that he poo-pooed and may have even given his blessing to demonstrators expressing a desire to hang his vice president, Mike Pence, beyond comprehension. And we learned all of this from Republicans, Republican witnesses, Republican testimony, Republican emails. Many, like young idealists such as Cassidy Hutchinson and Sarah Matthews, may have been the most powerful witnesses of all, their sense of disappointment and betrayal clearly etched on their faces. Oh, and we saw Josh Hawley run for his life inside the Capitol on January 6, 2021, not long after he gave a clenched fist salute to the soon-to-be insurrectionists. Let's hope that haunts him for the rest of his political career. We also got to watch Trump's January 7th address to the nation, especially the raw footage that showed him continuing to deny the election was settled. I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. You do not represent our movement. You do not represent our country. And if you broke the law, you can't say that. I'm not gonna, you, I already said you will pay. The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defied the seat of dust. It's defiled, right? See, I can't see it very well. Okay, I'll I'll do this. I'm going to do this. Let's go. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over. Okay? But Congress is certified. Now Congress is Yeah. Right. Now, I didn't say over, so let, let me see. Don't go to the paragraph before. Okay? I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. Yesterday is a hard word for me. Just take that. The heinous, the heinous attack. attack 
Ah, good. Take the word yes to that, because it doesn't work with the heinous attack on our country. Say on our country. Want to say that? No. My only goal was to ensure the integrity of the vote. My only goal was to ensure the integrity of the vote. Some angry Republicans have said the only reason the committee showed the footage of Hawley fleeing and Trump trying to deliver a speech was to embarrass them. If that's true, well, I'm down with that. Now we're left with an obvious follow-up question. What's next? What are Merrick Garland and the Justice Department thinking? What other witnesses do Liz Cheney and company have in store, assuming the committee returns in September? And what will the voters have to say about it? You know the moment Republicans win control of the House, should that happen, this committee will cease to exist. And, of course, a new committee will be formed in its stead, designed to investigate Hunter Biden, Hillary Clinton, and probably Billy Saul Estes. But for now, don't dismiss the DOJ just yet. Its lawyers watch the hearings along with the rest of us, and there are indications that what they've seen is enough to up their investigations. I'm very interested in what top aides to Mike Pence had to say to the grand jury. I'm also willing to guess they were far more honest and forthcoming than the former vice president himself, who, in a bland and vacuous speech earlier this week in D.C., expressed how proud he was of the Trump-Pence years in office and the Trump-Pence tax cuts and the Trump-Pence foreign policy. Maybe no one told him his boss was all in on the thought of him being hanged. He's not the man to hold your trust Everything he touches turns to dust In his hand Nothing he can do is right He'd even like to sleep at night But he can't Sixteen states are holding primaries next month, two of which are happening on the 16th of August. One, in Alaska, is where Sarah Palin is seeking a political comeback after 13 years out of office. We'll have more of that later in the program. The other contest is in Wyoming, where voters will decide whether Liz Cheney's aggressive actions to hold Donald Trump responsible for the January 6th insurrection deserves another term. There are some, not many, but there are some Democrats who live in Wyoming. Nearly 46,000 as of 2021, according to the Secretary of State's office, a whopping 16.34% of the vote. Republicans, with 196,000 voters, have 70%. But Democrats may play a role in the August 16th primary to determine Liz Cheney's future. Congresswoman Cheney is a solid conservative who votes with Donald Trump more than 90% of the time. But as someone who voted to impeach him and who has led the investigation into his attempts to overturn the 2020 election results, she has become Trump's number one target. He wants nothing more to see her defeated. And he is strongly backing Cheney's main Republican opponent, Harriet Hageman. I have fought for Wyoming and I will fight for you in Washington, D.C. And I will be taking that fight to D.C., just as soon as I defeat Liz Cheney. No Democrat has won a U.S. Senate seat here since 1970, or the state's lone House seat since 1976. 
Roger McDaniel is one of those rare breed of Wyoming Democrats. In 1982, he took on Senator Malcolm Wallop and received 43% of the vote, an impressive number for a Wyoming Democrat, even though he didn't come close to winning. He's the only Democrat in Wyoming I know, and so I thought it'd be interesting to get his take on the race for Congress and Liz Cheney's future. Roger McDaniel, welcome to The Political Junkie. Ken, glad to be with you. I'm so glad to have you on the show. I'm fascinated by how Washington sees Cheney and how Wyoming sees her. In Washington, she's a hero fighting to uphold democracy and make Trump accountable for his role in the plot to overturn the elections. In Wyoming, the state where Trump got his highest percentage of the vote, she's a sellout, or at least among Republicans anyway, conservative Republicans. She's a sellout who's betrayed both her party and conservative principles. As a Wyoming Democrat, tell me how you see Liz Cheney. Well, Liz is a solid Republican. Uh, you know, in, uh, in the 2020 election, uh, she, she scored about as many votes as Trump, just a few less. Got 70% of the vote for her reelection. Very strong, very popular. Voted with Trump, as you said, more than 90% of the time. Uh, worked against uh, the first impeachment. Uh, was on board with Bill Barr in obscuring the Mueller report. And But uh, January 6th was a bridge too far for her. And um, she she couldn't go along. And as a result, she's really been ostracized out here by the party. But she's been kicked out of the party. You know what, what the irony that I see in all this is that the Cheney name is mostly reviled with Democrats, you know, not only because of Liz's conservative voting record, but her father, who, was, who once represented this seat and, and who, as vice president, was a leading proponent of the invasion of Iraq. Um, and yet Democrats I talk to, Democrats I talk to, admire what she's doing on the January 6th committee. Yeah, they do. And um, it's it really is seen by them as courageous. It's also seen as the only opportunity Democrats in Wyoming will ever have to um, stick it to Donald Trump. You know, he, we get uh, we we can get about 30 percent of the vote out here for a Democratic Party nominee for president. But this is an opportunity to reject Trumpism. And um, a lot of Democrats are uh, switching parties. It, the question is whether or not there are enough of us left to make a difference in that primary. Well, I was going to ask you about that. There, there was a uh, a poll taken a week or so ago for the Casper Star Tribune that showed Cheney tra- uh, trailing Hageman 52 to 30 with 11 percent undecided. Um, you know, given given that the primary is less than a month away, that sounds like a pretty steep climb for Cheney uh, for, for her to survive. It is a it is a steep climb. But, uh, yesterday, it was made known that the former Democratic governor, Mike Sullivan, has switched parties to vote for Liz in that in the primary. Wow. And uh, I think that that will result in a good many Democrats who were uncomfortable uh, going ahead and moving over. But uh, I'm just not sure there are enough of us. Do you have to switch parties to vote for her or can Democrats cross over? No, you have to actually switch parties, which you can do at the polls. Okay. Uh, you, you can walk in on election day and ask for, uh, ask to uh, switch parties, and they'll switch your party right there, and you can vote the Republican ballot. Let me play a Club for Growth ad that attacks Cheney, and, and, this, and it shows pictures of Hillary Clinton throughout. Remember, she benefited from a famous political last name. 
She sided with Nancy Pelosi and attacked President Trump when he was in office. She supported impeachment, and she continues to attack President Trump today. Hillary Clinton? No, Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney is wrong about Trump, and she's wrong for Wyoming in Congress. Club for Growth Action is responsible for the content of this advertising. You know, Roger, the, the thought of comparing Liz Cheney to Hillary Clinton is, is pretty remarkable. It is bizarre. It, it's uh, kind of the times in which we live. And, of course, out here, Hillary is uh, very unpopular. And, uh, in fact, in 2016, there were you know, Republican candidates for uh, offices down ballot who were comparing their opponents for a county commission seat or for a state legislative seat with Hillary and and uh, photoshopping photographs to show them together. So, you know, you, you can't wave the Hillary flag enough out here to, to create a, a unhappy voters. Are you planning are you planning to switch parties for this? I mean, I know there are some Democrats. I mean, there's no Tino Roncalio, but I know there are some Democrats who are running for this seat. And, and I think you agree and I agree that a Democrat is not going to win it. But uh, do you what do you plan to do regarding this primary? Well, I've already switched parties and I've already voted. I've voted the first day they allowed uh, that voting opened. Um, and I'm encouraging all of my friends to switch party and, and parties. And most of them have already done so. Isn't it remarkable, the thought of you switching parties to become a Republican to vote for a Cheney? I mean, when you think of it, it's pretty like, yikes. <laughs> You know, it was it was her father. You go back to 1982, and you look at the history of that race. And um, your, your Senate race, your Senate race, yeah. My Senate race. You, you could make a case back then that I had a shot at winning it until Dick Cheney uh, came in and tore a part of my backside off. But, <laughs> so you know, it was that I had to kind of kind of hold my nose, but. You know, I just think the, the it, this is existential. Uh, the The continuation of the republic is on the ballot with Wyoming, and there's no possible way Harriet Hageman could have gotten Donald Trump's endorsement without agreeing to do something involving overturning the next election if necessary. And so it's a pretty critical election. Well, wasn't she once an anti-Trumper, right, in 2016? Wasn't she an anti-Trumper? She was a Ted Cruz delegate in 2016 and uh, called uh, Donald Trump a racist and a, and a xenophobic candidate who would cost the Republican Party the presidency. But, uh, you know, opportunity came knocking after Liz voted to impeach. Did you ever in your life think you would vote for a candidate named Cheney? No. <laughs> no. But I have, I have her sign on my front yard. <laughs> I mean, I understand the pull of Trump, and, and sometimes Trump has a great sway. Sometimes it works in some primaries, and sometimes it doesn't. But, I mean, as, you, as we both established, as we both agree, Liz Cheney is perhaps one of the most conservative members of Congress, certainly far more conservative than Elise Stefanik, who, who replaced her as a, in the leadership because, because, you know, Liz Cheney wasn't loyal enough. But, but what, ha- what, what happens to... You know, like the 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 Alan Simpsons of the world, the, uh, um, the 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 ones who who are decent, somewhat moderate. I mean, they're conservative, but but compared to what's happening lately, they're somewhat moderate. Uh, where wh- what voice do these Republicans have? 
Well, it's limited. Um, I, I joke with Al Simpson that he couldn't get his party's nomination today, and he agrees. The party in Wyoming has just moved so far to the right. The chairman of the party is a member of the Oath Keepers. He was at the January 6th uh, rally and on the Capitol grounds during the riot. The chairman of the state Republican Party. Right. is a member of the Oath Keepers. And uh, so that that's the kind of uh, party that it's become. Do you have a prediction for what happens on August 16th? Well, I'm, I'm just going to stay optimistic. I, I you know, uh, in 2016, I said there's no way this country will elect Donald Trump, and I was wrong. I said that on Election but Day. I, I said that on Election Day, and mm-hmm. I, and, and I, but I just got to believe that, that, that we've reached a point where there are, there's just got to be enough right-minded Republicans to look honestly at what's being disclosed by the January 6th committee and um, step up. Well, we'll so I'm, I'm just going to stay optimistic. Roger McDaniel is a Democrat from Wyoming, yes, you heard that, who served in the state Senate and the House in 1982. He was his party's nominee against U.S. Senator Malcolm Wallop. He's also the author of The Man in the Arena, The Life and Times of U.S. Senator Gail McGee. Gail McGee was the last Democrat Wyoming ever sent to the Senate. Roger, it was great having you on The Political Junkie. Ken, good to be with you. Thank you. Let me just leave you with this from one of Cheney's ads. As we work together to fight for Wyoming and the issues that matter to us, there are some things you can count on. When I know something is wrong, I will say so. I won't waver or back down. I won't surrender to pressure or intimidation. I know where to draw the line, and I know that some things aren't for sale. That's the code of the West, and that's what Wyoming voters deserve and expect. Men and women have died in every generation to defend our freedom. If our generation does not stand for truth, the rule of law, and our Constitution, if we set aside our founding principles for the politics of the moment, the miracle of our constitutional republic will slip away. Some things have to matter. American freedom, the rule of law, our founding principles, the foundations of our republic matter. What we do in this election in Wyoming matters. I'm Liz Cheney. I'm running for re-election, and I'm asking for your vote, because this is a fight we must win. Once she was the center of the political universe. I had the privilege of living most of my life in a small town. I was just your average hockey mom and signed up for the PTA. I love those hockey moms. You know, they say the difference between a hockey mom and a pit bull? Lipstick. But since she quit her job as governor of Alaska in the middle of her term in 2009, a year after her famous convention speech and the subsequent loss of the ticket led by John McCain, Sarah Palin has dabbled in right-wing causes, campaigned for conservative candidates, made a lot of money, and closely tied herself to Donald Trump. Millions of people loved her. She also became a political punchline and the object of scathing mockery, much of it, but not all of it, deserved. She's back as a candidate for the first time since 2008, hoping to succeed Congressman Don Young, who died in March after having served 49 years, longer than any other Republican in history. 
The August 16th special primary is the second part of a process that began in June with 48 candidates on the ballot. As per Alaska's new election law, the top four candidates from that first primary made it to the runoff. Palin, who led the pack with 43,000 votes, Nick Begich III with nearly 31,000, and Mary Paltola, the only Democrat, with 16,000. A fourth candidate, independent Al Gross, withdrew from the race after the primary. Does Palin's sizable lead in the first primary mean she's the candidate to beat next month? Not necessarily. Suzanne Downing is a conservative who edits the political website and podcast Must Read Alaska. She's well-tuned into Republican politics in the state. She can see the congressional campaign from her kitchen window. Suzanne, welcome to The Political Junkie. It's really a pleasure to be here today. Thank you for inviting me. But my real question is this. For, for someone who's been away from Alaska for as, for as much time as Sarah Palin has, not to mention that she quit the governorship, there were questions about whether Alaska voters would welcome her back. So I, th- I think the question is, what message did you get when she finished first in the initial primary? Well, it, uh, I follow politics very closely. It's kind of my bread and butter. It's what I do, and I consider myself to be one of the sort of political experts in Alaska. And so I wasn't totally surprised by that, and I'll tell you why. We have a great deal of turnover in our state. Every year you have 40,000 people moving in and out of the state. Some of the same people move back in and out, but we have a big churn. We have one of the most transient populations in America. And that's because uh, living in Alaska is just not for everybody, and it's not for everybody for long periods of time. Some people just need to get out and go venture somewhere else in the world, and they need to get homesick and they come back. But all that said, Ken, is um, there are a lot of people who live in Alaska now who did not live in Alaska in 2008. The churn is real, and they don't know Sarah Palin from those years. They don't remember her as governor. They don't recall her quitting when she said it was just too hard. Essentially, if you boil down everything that she said about why she quit, it was because it was too hard. The media was just too hard on her, and she just felt like she couldn't get anything done, so she quit. And um, they don't know that. They just know that they that she is on Fox News, that she's on Newsmax, that she's popular with Trump, that she is a, a very vocal firebrand. She is uh, kind of a go-to person. She's been on the, the uh, Masked Singer. She's just a person who's quite, she's quite famous. And, and I will tell you this, Ken, she is the most famous Alaskan in Alaska history. And so I am not surprised that she finished first. But again, she, she got 43,000 votes and of 161,000. In other words, she didn't get the majority of the votes. Right, with 48 candidates, right? Yeah. Out of 48 candidates, she got the most votes, no question. And I think your question is, how's she going to do next time? I'm I'm sure you're going to ask me that eventually. Well, that's that's the obvious next question. I mean, does she... Does she does she maintain that number one status? It's easy to be number one when you're famous and there are 48 candidates. It's less easy if there are only three candidates. Correct. And so in, we had a very unusual primary, Ken. What happened is when Don Young died on March 18th, it sent in motion something that we had to do, uh, the hurry-up situation. We had to... Uh, 
put together a primary to fill out his term. We're just trying to fill out his term until January when the next congressperson will be sworn in. And in order to do that, we had to come up with a primary and a general election. We couldn't just have a, a one election to fill that out. We have a new voting system up here. It's called Ballot Measure 2, put in something called Ranked Choice Voting and an open primary. It has a whole bunch of rules around it. So even to fill out the, a temporary seat for just, oh, it'll be September, October, November, and December, we had to have a primary and a general. So in our primary, we had 48 people, right? So, so there were 120,000 people who did not vote for her. In order to get this primary out the door, they had to do a mail-in only system because they had to just get the whole process underway. So they did a mail-in ballot. That means a lot of people voted in a primary that typically don't vote. Most primary elections can, they have super voters. And those people who kind of study issues are politically engaged and they, they go and vote in the primaries. And then you have a, a big drop-off of the people who are sort of undeclared voters or they vote now and then. They don't vote in municipal races. They sometimes vote in primaries. But in this primary, you had a pretty good turnout because the ballot was mailed to every address. And the ballot was really mailed to every address because we have a, sort of a no-excuse voting system up here where everybody's registered to vote if they even you know have a poll. And so... Because of that mail-in system, a lot of uneducated voters, unengaged voters probably voted when they wouldn't have normally voted. See what I mean? So, okay, so, so, so obviously the more dedicated, the real political junkies are more likely to vote on the 16th. Is that what you're saying? Well, but again, that's another primary. That is actually going to be a regular primary for the more permanent seat, for the regular seat. On the back side of that ballot, you're going to have a ranked choice ballot for the three who advanced from the special primary that we had in June 11th. So it's going to be very confusing, and in our we find our voters are very confused by this because we have a new ballot system up here where we do the open primary. We don't have uh, party ballots anymore, and we have a ranked choice general. And because we've got a special election right in the middle of all this, we have a mess. But on the back of your regular primary ballot will be this special general election to fill out the four-month seat. So people will be experimenting with this new ranked choice system. And there's only three names that advance. So in any, in any case, we still are having a primary in the middle of August, in the middle of fishing season. Remember, it's fishing season. It's also get ready for winter season. Put your wood in season. It's, it's basically get everything, everything done season. Okay, so back to Sarah Palin. You say that a lot of many many voters who people who live in Alaska may not have remembered her as governor, but they have to know that she's somebody who quit the governorship, correct? And is there still residual anger about that? Among some people, uh, people who lived here remember the sort of the drama, and they remember that she quit. And um, you know, I have said in the past, she quit because it was just too hard. It was too hard to get the people's work done, is how she puts it. And yet I think about the times when, um, you know, Abraham Lincoln didn't quit when it was just too hard, and George Washington didn't quit when it was too hard, and Harry Truman didn't quit, um, FDR didn't quit. People don't quit unless they do quit. And do, she do you quit. Realize, and so, Suzanne, do you realize yes? you're the only person in the, in the history of the world that put Sarah Palin, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Harry Truman uh, in the same sentence? Could be. I may be. I may be creating history here. But what I'm talking about, as you as you know, is leadership, the quality of leadership, and what you what how you define too hard. 
And so it was too hard for her was, was a undue harassment from the media asking for a lot of public records. And there was a lot of pressure on her. The media, once she came back from the race with John McCain, the media was kind of all over her. She was a, uh, she was a fixation of theirs. And they, there does tend to be a fixation around Sarah Palin. Typically, people are kind of fixated on her because she's quite a character. She's very much a character. But I guess my point is um, some people say that, you know, if it was too hard for you to govern under that kind of pressure, maybe you're really not cut out for that. Okay, so President Trump came into state the other, you know, not too long ago to campaign for her. Now, he also came into call for the defeat of Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski, but he sounded more animated talking about getting rid of Murkowski than he did about promoting Palin. One, is that a fair observation? And two, how much pull do you think Trump has with his endorsement of Palin? Trump did very well in the state in 2020. He took 53% of the vote. And, but he, but he's obviously like in other places, he's a divisive character. You either like him or you don't like him, but everybody has an opinion on him. There's just nobody who's undecided on Trump. And Sarah Palin is a lot like that. People have an opinion on her. They either like her or they don't like her. And its opinions are strong. So he came into the state, uh, ostensibly to vote, to a uh, campaign for, uh, Kelly Chewbacca for U.S. Senate against his nemesis. Uh, Lisa Murkowski, who he, he does not forgive for all of her kind of sins against him when she was, um, uh, you know, she didn't vote for Kavanaugh, and she, she opposed him on many things, and she, she also voted. Voting to convict she, him. She, she voted to convict him on the, on the second impeachment right. after he was already out of office, and he's just like, wait a second, I'm not even a president anymore. How can you impeach me? But, um, th- but he also came into campaign for Sarah, and you've got to remember Sarah Palin was one of his first early endorsers. Uh, when he first ran for president. And he doesn't forget that. He actually appreciates that and is rewarding her for her loyalty. And then he also was campaigning um, for Governor Mike Dunleavy. Uh, a little less so, he just happened to mention his name, and, and Governor Dunleavy did not attend the rally. He, he's, he's sticking to his own lane on this stuff, uh, staying out of, the, out of the drama with, with Palin and Trump. That's a, there's a lot of drama there that the governor really doesn't need to be attached to. So, yeah, he came in, and he, he's very passionate about getting rid of Murkowski. But if he wants to get rid of Murkowski, he's going to have to do more than just come once. He's going to have to come back a few times because she's going to probably do pretty well. She is the centrist candidate who can get lots of Democrat votes, lots of undeclared votes, and at least probably 20% of the Republican votes. She can get 20%. Do you think that new system, that ranked choice system, helps her? It was designed for her, actually. It was designed by her former campaign counsel, who, uh, a lawyer, who they realized that she could never again win a Republican primary. So they designed a new system for the Alaska elections that would be tailor-made so that Lisa could advance. And then they used outside money uh, from Unite America and uh, the, something, something the Fair Vote group to uh, $7 million, which is in Alaska, you can, you can buy elections really easily in Alaska because it's a small state and we've, got, we've only got a couple hundred, 300,000 voters or something. So they came in, they pushed the message saying, we want to get rid of dark money, vote for ballot measure two. So the, the voters voted for it, not by much, but it did pass. And it allows, uh, it, it, they did not real, voters did not realize this was custom designed for Lisa Murkowski so that she would never have to face 
a partisan primary again because the Republicans are done with her. They, I mean, I, again, 20% of the Republicans will vote for her, but that's about it. Really? That's, so, all, that's all, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's all she's going to get from Republicans. Well, go, let me go back to the House race. Now, one of the, the uh, apparently the leading opponent, a person who finished second in that primary, that big primary, was uh, Nick Begich. Now, mm-hmm. as an old timer, <laughs> you know, if I hear the name Nick Begich, I immediately think of that Alaska Democratic congressman who died in the plane crash in October of 72. Actually, he defeated Don Young after the plane crash. Um, the, the Nick Begich, Nick Begich III, who's running is apparently a very conservative Republican, which, of course, blows my mind. Tell me about this new Begich. Well, so I met Nick Begich III in 2015, and he started getting involved in uh, politics in Alaska. He's a businessman. is raising a, a, a young family. He has, uh, got a, he's got a, a beautiful family. His wife's a pharmacist, and he is an uh, angel investor, essentially, is what I would call him. He does business investments. He's done very well for himself. Still a little bit like our Elon Musk. He's very forward-thinking. But he he was raised in a different arm of the family. His father is quite well-known as Nick Baggins II, and he is um, kind of a mad scientist in a way. But his parents divorced early on, and he moved with his mom. They moved down to Florida, and he was raised by his grandparents. His grandparents were very conservative Christians. He was raised in Christian schools going from K-12, and then he went to Baylor University, the Christian University. So he's had a really strong sort of traditional values. And that was, that is the upbringing he had. Uh-huh. And then as an adult, he went to work with Ford Motor and then he and his family, this young wife and child, they said, you know what? We're not raising our kid in Detroit. So they moved back to Alaska where he was born. And so he's been there. And now, uh, you know, 16 years later, he's running for Congress. And I think that he has a sense of destiny about it and that this is something that he's always wanted to do. And so he's uh, very conservative, uh, but he's a business conservative. And so he's kind of focused on policy. He's very serious-minded. And I was worried about him at first because I'm a conservative, and I thought, yeah, the biggest name. I don't know, biggest. That's, a, that's just a name that is hard to overcome. But the fact of the matter is we can't hold people's names against them, and I've gotten to know him pretty well, and, and I, I do believe he is who he says he is. And he's a... He's been a Republican since he was part of the Republican club in his high school. So good enough. I wasn't a Republican in high school, but apparently he was. So there you go. They, uh, I think when I was in high school, it was before the Republican Party was formed. But I know actually. Um, but if you're saying if most people don't remember uh, Sarah Palin as governor, I can't imagine them remember Nick Begich as a congressman. But but let me just tell you this. So I I mean this is hardly a, an official poll uh, or anything like that, but. Of the few Alaska Republicans I've spoken to, to a person, everyone said they're voting for Begich. How come? Uh, so he wanted to run two years ago, and he went to Congressman Young and said, I really want to run. And Congressman Young then immediately ran his trap lines and got people to convince Nick Begich to, instead of running, be my co-chair of my campaign. Well, Don Young had never had a co-chair for his campaign, but he picked Nick Begich and Rhonda Boyle, the former mayor of Fairbanks. And so they, they were the co-chair of this campaign. Well, as Don Young was declining, Nick was really his surrogate out there on the campaign trail. Nick could go all over the state, and he went all over the state on his own dime, basically just you know helping out and campaigning for, for Don Young. And, um, and then they got him elected. And, and after that, uh, the next year, he went to Don and said, okay, I'm going to run. This time I'm really going to run. And 
and he meant it. He said, like, last time you, you put me off, you said, be my campaign co-chair. I, I did that, but this time I'm going to run. So he, he filed in October of 2021. He had already seen that Don Young was in great physical decline. Don Young was in a lot of pain. He needed to have some surgery done on his back. And as you may remember, Ken, he is starting to be wheeled around, not just down to the floor and then walking on the floor. He was now being wheeled on the floor. And so he was um, in great physical pain. And uh, then, of course, he died coming back to Alaska from uh, Seattle on um, March 18th. And this is something that Nick could really see. Nick could see that there was a very serious physical decline happening, and he saw it two years ago, and he knew that we needed to have a backup plan for Don Young, and he was perfectly willing to be that backup plan. Now, he ran before it was popular to run. He ran back in October, and he said, I'm going to do it. Don, you know, I'm going to hold you to your uh, uh, the votes that I disagree with you on. I'm going to point those out. And so, he, for instance, he disagreed with Don Young on the infrastructure bill. He disagreed with Don on the PRO Act. He disagreed with Don on uh, red flag laws and some other things, and he was pointing those things out. And so what, I, back to your question, why are Republicans on board with him? Because he's been going around the state shaking people's hands and looking him in, in the eye. He's been doing ab- absolute retail politics, which is talk to people. It's the only way that a conservative who's named Begich is going to be able to get anywhere is to look people in the eye and say, it's really, you know, it's the, I'm the real deal. Because if you don't meet him and you just know his name and you're a conservative, you might be prejudiced against him. Compare the way that he's campaigning to the way that Sarah Palin is campaigning. Well, that's a very good question, Ken. The the styles are are very different. He's out there with the people a lot. He is um, at every event, every day. He's at two or three events and flying all over the state. And Sarah is sort of cherry-picking some big events, and then she's just doing more with her Instagram account. And then if she goes to a parade for the next couple of three weeks, you'll see lots of Instagram posts where they take the pictures from the parade and they keep posting those. And so she's using a lot of social media. But it's interesting. I was looking at the the filings, the financial filings. She only has $58,000 left to work with from her FEC filings because, and that's up, up to the most recent report, the, the Form 3, I think it is, is because she's been using these fundraising mills to raise money for her, and they're taking 50 cents on the dollar for everything they raise for her. They're keeping 50 cents. And so she's not earning that much money. She get all of her money is coming from out of state, all of it. She has no local donors. All of her endorsements are coming from out of state. People like, you know, Rand Paul and Elise Stefanik and Donald Trump and, and Nick Gingrich, you know, all the high and mighties are endorsing her. But then you go and look at um, Nick Begich's list of endorsements. Almost every single mayor in Alaska has endorsed Nick Begich. And most of the mayors are conservative. I mean, they're all conservative mayors. And she's, he's got like 10 or 15 Republican lawmakers, like in the legislature, who have endorsed him. His list is ginormous. And so you've got a a lot of ability to reach people through those surrogates, whereas Sarah Palin is going, you know, for the the glamour. She's got the, the star power. 
So they're very different kinds of campaigns. One is grassroots and one is really work in the star power. She doesn't need to work on her name recognition. It's, like I said, most famous Alaskan in Alaska history. I remember through all my years of watching, uh, following Alaska politics, that polls were never that reliable. And I don't think I've even seen any polls for this. But what does your gut tell you about August 16th? Uh, I think it'll be close between Nick and Sarah. But I also think there is a route for Mary Peltola to do better than people expect. And the the good money says that Mary Peltola thinks she's a, a long shot to win. She's a Democrat. She comes from Bethel, Alaska, which is kind of, for you, would be in the middle of nowhere. She's very well liked, and she's got an affable personality. She's just amazingly nice person, extremely liberal. Really, we're talking about a kind of a Bernie Sanders type of liberal, right? But she's very she's very likable, and there's only three people on the ballot. If you don't like Sarah Palin, and you're you're going to rank people, you might rank somebody like Nick first, and maybe Mary second, and then maybe Sarah third. If you're voting for Palin, you're never going to rank Mary Peptola because she's just absolute opposite of Palin. So you'd probably rank Nick second. So it's, it's the question, who can gather all these sort of second place votes? And you've got to at least maintain that second place position in order to overtake whoever's the number one. So I think it's going to be very close because I think that Nick can grab Sarah's second place vote and Mary's second place vote more likely than those other two can, can play the same game. And he may be able to get very close to, to Sarah. But in the general election, you, you have not just the super voters, but now you have you know, more like all voters. And so you'll get more star power attraction there for Sarah. And she will continue to gather national endorsements. Now, the question is, is in the special election that we're having, the person who advances as a temporary placeholder has a tremendous advantage. So really, this is it. In the, the August election will determine who will be the actual incumbent. Suzanne Downing edits the political website and podcast Must Read Alaska. Suzanne, thanks so much for being on the program. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have a good day, everybody. Everywhere I go, wind, every place. It's time for this week in political history. Democrats meeting in Miami Beach 50 years ago had a tough task at hand. They needed to unite behind an insurgent candidate, George McGovern, whose strong opposition to the war in Vietnam and his party's establishment made him a controversial figure. In addition, McGovern had to name a running mate. Many of his top picks dismayed by polls that showed a McGovern-led ticket getting swamped by President Nixon, said no. One Democrat, first-term Missouri Senator Thomas Eagleton, said yes. Most of us did not expect to nominate a man who began with only 5% in the polls. 
few expected our convention to be orderly and so productive. And surely I did not expect to stand before you tonight as the Democratic nominee for Vice President of the United States. It is thus with deep humility in the face of the responsibility you've asked me to assume and with profound gratitude to you, the delegates, and of course to Senator McGovern, that I accept your nomination. The convention itself was a logistical mess. Eagleton didn't begin his acceptance speech until after two in the morning. And first he had to undergo a bizarre roll call procedure that included votes for 78 other VP hopefuls, such as, and I'm not making this up, Archie Bunker, Mao Zedong, Martha Mitchell, and Jerry Rubin. But that wasn't even the worst part. It was soon revealed that Eagleton had been hospitalized for depression and had undergone electroshock therapy to treat it. And that became such a scandal at the time that McGovern, even though he said he was 1,000% behind Tom Eagleton, forced him off the ticket 18 days later, on July 31st, 50 years ago this week. Despite the uproar, Eagleton remained wildly popular back home, winning two more Senate terms before retiring in 1986. He died in 2007. Barbara Ann Smith married Tom Eagleton in 1956. I met Barbara Eagleton years ago when I was giving a speech in St. Louis. In 2016, I interviewed her for a convention special on The Political Junkie to share her memories of that most tumultuous time. This is the replay of that interview. I really appreciate uh, us talking about some of this difficult time back in 72. Uh, look, that was a, a tough time for the Democrats. It was a tough convention for the Democrats as well. Do you remember when you first you got your first inkling that uh, Tom was first being considered for vice president? Well, we had planned to go to the convention in Miami maybe three or four months before. But, um, and just before we left to go, there was a little... Oh, kind of talk about, you know, maybe Tom being on the long, long, long list, but I don't think he took it seriously, and, and I didn't either. It was just, um, you know, there were a lot of people that were potentials, and Tom was fairly new to the Senate then, actually. I think we'd only been in Washington four years. Right. So I think we both sort of dismissed it, but it was, oh, it's got, was kind of flattering, so I liked it. Do you remember, but, do you remember where you were when you found out that he was the guy? Oh, yeah, we, were, we had stayed with the Missouri delegation at the Ivanhoe Hotel in Miami. And, yeah, that's when McGovern called him and asked him um, to be on the ticket. I think after a few, a few of our good Senate friends, senators, had turned it down, he was just fishing around for somebody sort of quickly so he could put the credentials in. I think the credentials had to be in by 2 in the afternoon. So it was, it was a little crazy. I mean, it all happened... In my estimation, it happened pretty fast because we really—I wasn't really thinking in terms of this. We went to Miami, although, as I say, there had been a little bit of scuttlebutt, but so many people were were in that kind of—you know—there were just a lot of people that were maybe interested in it, or other people were interested in having them be part of the maybes. Not much longer after the convention ended, uh, the, the, the party was in an uproar over uh, Tom's health history. Uh, I can't. Imagine what it must have been like for the family. What can you tell me? Well, 
Um, I think at the time I said it, it really wasn't. I felt sort of distant. Distant. I had. I felt sort of distant from the whole thing because, well, it wasn't anything new to me. Okay, number one. Number two, Tom was certainly a very functioning individual. So he, if he had some problems earlier, that wasn't anything I certainly was going to be dwelling on as we marched ahead. And so when it happened, I must say I took it with as either you know kind of pretty casually. Maybe a lot of people wouldn't have, but that's that's just my makeup. And even though there was this big swirl of news and people around, I think I told you once before, I felt like I was in the middle of this great storm, and I was the center of it, and I just, while it swirled around me, I just remained kind of calm and watched events happen, and if I was needed to do anything, just fine, but it didn't have that great an impact on me. The fact is that I didn't really want Tom to to do this. I just... I didn't want I didn't want him to accept the governor's invitation. I just I said I think you know you should stick to the Senate career because I always thought he would do that and I want him to stay there and I loved Washington and I thought Tom would be a really great senator. So I wasn't too happy about about this. But I do I do remember you telling me that it almost felt like you were in the middle of a tornado when all these swirling winds were all around you and inside it was just completely calm. It it was. I guess it's because nothing was new to me, and I knew it would all calm down. It just, it's just that's this kind of life. Although that was a long time ago, and I was much, much younger, but somehow it didn't have the upsetting factor that you might expect. And I can't. I guess it's just my nature. I don't know, but it was pretty darn interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember your husband clearly wanted to fight it out. Uh, here he is uh, campaigning in California. And we're not going to let a Jack Anderson or somebody else drive politicians who've devoted their entire life to public service to drive them out of office. I'm not quitting. I'm not getting out. We're going to win this election, and I'm going to be the next vice president of the United States. Well, at some point it was clear that he was on the losing end of that argument. And so when it was over, when, when he did resign from the ticket, did you feel relief, uh, anger, betrayal, everything, all the above? No. No. No, I think I felt relief. I mean, I liked, I didn't know the McGoverns, I didn't know Eleanor at all, which is surprising because I knew a lot of Senate wise, but um, I knew George and I liked him very much. So, you know, if that's, if that's what he thought he should do, I mean, I think he, he was reluctant, he was very reluctant to have to drop Tom from the ticket. I know that. And he told us all about his family and it, you know, it, Depression isn't that unusual, shall we say. But in any case, I liked him very much, but he just felt that the, the ticket needed Tom off it and he needed to have somebody else, that there was, that, it, that even though it would have been a big, uh, the main focus for him, certainly, that it seemed to be with the press, and that's, that's just the way it is. That's part of the political process. So, I mean, once George said that he would like Tom to step down, Tom said, absolutely. I do remember that years later, McGovern said he regretted dumping your husband from the ticket. He said that nobody understood anything about mental illness back then. So, I mean, well, he... the McGoverns did. But, you know, that was then. Yeah, 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 that's true. Did your husband and McGovern uh, have any relationship in the years afterwards? Or was everything okay, or did they... Yeah, I think everything was fine. Um, and actually, he came here. He called, called Tom and said... The Cardinals were his football, I mean, were his baseball club, 
And uh, he used to go, he used to listen to all the Cardinal games. So he called and he said he'd like to come to St. Louis and um, go to a Cardinals game. I can't remember which one it was, but anyway, then he said, "Well, where can I stay?" <laughs> so uh, Tom said, "Is he okay? Is it all right if I invite him to stay here?" And I said, "Of course." <laughs> anyway, they went to the game. I stayed home. Then when they get back, we stayed up and talked late. And the next morning, he was gone early because I get up early, and he was gone by six. And he left a nice long note. That was the last I ever heard from him. I think by that time, Eleanor was uh, was no longer with us. Obviously, this happened a long time ago, but it, it sounds like you're at complete peace over what happened. You don't seem to wince when people like me coming around asking you about those days. No, no, no I don't. If I can remember everything. <laughs> Let's see, that was 40, 40. Oh, my God, that's 44 years ago. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad I can still remember a lot of details. <laughs> I am thrilled that you've come on our program to talk about this. Uh, Barbara Eagleton, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. You're most welcome. That was my interview with Barbara Eagleton from 2016. It was 50 years ago this week, on July 31, 1972, when her husband, Missouri Senator Tom Eagleton, was dropped by the Democratic ticket by presidential nominee George McGovern. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If any of you have some campaign buttons from this year's primaries available, please drop me a line. I want them. I need them. As always, if you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe. I'll see you soon.